0: This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. To hear additional programs, please visit www.whitworth.edu podcast. I have the honor of introducing uh, Dr. John Paul Wiest, uh, who's both, I think, a celebrity in the field of uh, Chinese Christian studies, but he's also a friend and mentor to uh, many of us who now attempt as best we can to follow largely in his scholarly footsteps. Um, But first I should acknowledge the Speakers and Artists Series and uh, also uh, acknowledge uh, uh, Professor Casey Andrews uh, who is uh, directing the Speakers and Artists Series for sponsoring uh, uh, Dr. Weiss' talk tonight. And also we should thank several students, uh, Michelle Bodman, uh, Hannah Tweet, who've uh, worked to help promote Dr. Weiss' talk. So we, we, we offer them thanks also. Dr. Weist is among the smartest people I know, which is uh, a high uh, uh, tribute given that I've known a large number of uh, scholars over the past several decades, and he reminds me of an old uh, Chinese axiom, and, uh, and I've thought of him, I've thought of this saying when he'll talk about things because we'll conjure some random uh, topic related to the history of the church in China, and uh, Jean-Paul will have a, an enormous... La, uh, lengthy answer that is very insightful and 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 seems to know uh, so much more than those of us who are, think that we know everything because we're researching that particular topic but there's this great saying 名人, uh, 不用喜说, 想古不用中学, which makes me think of of, of uh, dr weist he's recently retired from his important appointment as the director of research at China's, I think, best library of Sino-Western and Sino-Christian uh, studies uh, materials, the Beijing Center, which is in, in Beijing. I, 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 my last book was l- literally written uh, in that collection, uh, and uh, often, uh, ma- almost daily, uh, Jean-Paul was mentioned uh, there at the Beijing Center, and he's very much missed there. He's also been a research fellow at the Chinese University of Hong Kong, a visiting scholar at the University of Hong Kong Center of Asian Studies. Dr. Wiest was the founder and research director of the Center for Mission Research and Study at Mary Knoll, coordinator of the Mary Knoll in China History Project and research director of the Mary Knoll Society Oral History Program. Um, he spent much of his life in China where he has conducted workshops, Uh, And this is actually one of the things I I appreciate most about his work, um, where he's conducted workshops with local Chinese Christians to help them preserve their important local histories and has collected significant materials on the history of Christianity in China from private and institutional collections all over the world, well, from remote villages in China to major archives in Rome, Paris, and Belgium. During the Chinese New Year in 2014, I visited his home at Newcastle, where he's now living in retirement, a beautiful home, to see Jean-Paul and to consult his materials on the Jesuit mission at Shenzhen, uh, China. It's a topic I'm hoping to write my next book about. Jean-Paul made lunch for Amanda and me, and uh, he showed us around his home, which I thought actually was more like a museum of rare objects and images. And we s- he spent the entire afternoon with me poring over his uh, daunting collection of documents on the je- Jesuit enterprise in northern China. I, I photographed those, and I put them in a special folder I keep in my office, uh, and am uh, eager to, to pour over them and, and use them as I, r- I work on my next book. In 1988, uh, Dr. Wiest published his monumental tome, Mary Knoll in China, A History. And since then, I think uh, you might have written six or seven other books and uh, published numerous book chapters and articles and given countless talks on the history and situation of Christianity in China. One of my favorite photographs is of Jean-Paul sitting, looking at his computer screen with a group of Chinese uh, around him, and everyone is is smiling and happy. And to me, that really epitomizes... Jean-Paul's relationship with China, a joyful friend of China, and, um, and I'm looking forward to his next 10 books before he, <laughs> before he stops writing. I don't want to say anything else because I want to give him the podium, so without any uh, more time away from his talk, Whitworth and, and uh, we are all honored to have Dr. Jean-Paul Wiest here.
1: Wow! I don't know if I can live up to it. What an introduction! Um, I'm really not worth that much, but thank you very much. Uh, I put something up there just to give you a, a taste of what uh, am I am I going to speak about today? Uh, on this side is a picture of uh, in a village of. Uh, Christian house, which says, "The Lord loves my home." And the other one is in an registered underground church village. It's a poster saying that uh, holy love, love, is without boundaries. And in the middle is a character Fu, uh, which In this village that's very close to a Marian shrine, you see the angel Gabriel announcing to Mary she's going to be the mother of Jesus. So let's get uh, started. So the making of an indigenous church has a long and chaotic history. For the period of the 16th to the mid-19th century, a vast amount of research has already been done. Up until not too long ago, studies tended to focus on the accomplishment of foreign missionaries rather than on the Chinese Christians. And in recent years, a shift has occurred with books, articles, symposiums, turning their attention to Chinese Christians. Some planted and nurtured the church, Others shed their blood for their faithfulness, and quite a few contributed to the rise and development of China's modern society. The birth and growth of the Chinese indigenous church is more than the result of the endeavors of foreign missionaries. It is as well the fruit of the efforts and sacrifice of Chinese Christians and their faith communities. Christianity is the religion of those, simple definition, of those who believe in Jesus Christ and try to live according to his teaching. These believers in China are called Jidutu Christians, regardless of the three major Christian denominations they belong to Roman Catholic, Tianzhu Jiao, Protestant, Jidu Jiao and Orthodox don't zheng jiao. Because of time constraint, and without prejudice to the two other denominations or groups, I will center my presentation on Chinese Christians considering themselves Roman Catholics, and I will use to avoid any possible confusion the expression Chinese Catholic rather than Chinese Christian. So with the canonizations of the martyrs of China on October 1st, 2000 by Pope John Paul I, this recognized the important role of the laity in the Chinese Catholic Church. Out of the 120 people that were canonized, 87 are Chinese who lived during the Qing dynasty. And out of them, among them, 76 are laymen and women whose actions are well documented. For the post-Qing period, for instance, we have Carol Hammering's series, Salt and Light, Lives and Faiths that Shape Modern China. This is as well a tribute to Chinese Catholic and Protestant who by their personal character and professional tr- uh, engagement, contributed to the formation of a modern Chinese society. Some were already quite well known, but others she brought back from oblivion. Quite a few books have also recounted the sufferings and imprisonment of Chinese Catholics in communist control area during the Japanese war and after that with the advent of the People's Republic of China. Many of these publications, however, tend to give the lion's share to the ordeals of Chinese clergy and religious people, their testimony, and their autobiographical accounts. Now, when we come to the present period of the Catholic Church in China, I think Richard Matson and Fan Li Zhu uh, personal observations and interviews of ordinary lay Catholic men and women and the challenge they face was superbly rendered in the book China's Catholics. Also published some 17 years ago already, the research is still very relevant but I think would benefit of an update in light of the events affecting the church since the advent of Xi Jinping at the helm of the country uh, since 2013. So, like Madsen, myself, my goal here is to give voice to Chinese Catholic, the church in China, as well as in the West, has not heard of or know very little about. My scope is, however, Broader, since I cover a period stretching from the mid-19th century to the present. And my focus is also somewhat different since I present people whose actions led to the founding and nurturing of the church at the local level. So having spent a good part of my life, as uh, Tony said, in, in China, uh, studying... Researching Christianity in China, I interviewed and read accounts of a good number of those unsung heroes of the church in China, and it's my privilege to introduce some to you. And I chose four examples. Uh, here we go. Uh, so one example would be from Guangdong, South China. Then we will move to what used to be Manchuria, to the Jilin province. And then from there we'll go to Shanxi, and then finally to Hebei province. So let's start with Guangdong. The person I'm going to talk about in Cantonese or Hakka dialect is Kyotek Nyuk. I think uh, the surname should be in Mandarin Chinese, Chiu, but I will call it Piu. And I call it the Pioneer. When the priests of the Paris Foreign Mission Society, La Société des Missions Etrangères, we already heard about them, arrived in Guangdong in late 1849, a few only of those priests took residence in the city of Canton, or Guangzhou. Most of them secretly scattered into villages and hamlets with a Catholic tradition dating back to the time of the Kangxi Emperor. To their great disappointment, the missionary found that some of these earlier Chrétienté, they call them, Christian group, had dwindled down or died down. But by contrast, Enthusiastic responses came from Catholic community that had apparently emerged spontaneously a few years just before the arrival of these French missionaries. So these new Christianity had all one thing in common. They had been established by a person returning to his native town or village after several years spent overseas. And among these returnees were those who had been converted to Christianity and were determined to share their Christian faith with their relatives and friends. They became the real founders of new Christian communities and uh, identified no less than 18 of these returnees. And here is the story of one of them by the name of Kyo new Kyo was born in uh, Hamlet near Dayang. Uh, I lost Dayang. Oh, Over, up. Dayan, we was it in blue over there? Yeah, Dian, A little mountain village, Hakka mountain village, high above the town of Khopur, which today is known as the county town of Ghexi. You see Ghexi on the map? Right here. So you see, the, this, this is a very detailed map. So... So, and we are here in eastern part of Guangdong, close to the Fujian province. So in his late 20s, after having mastered the skill of making grinding stones to grind the, the wheat and so, or the, the rice, rather, uh, he, he immigrated to Bangkok, where he worked for many years. There he befriended Father Etienne Albrand and converted to Catholicism. Kyo was a committed Catholic who, under the training of the guidance of Al-Bha, among the Hakka immigrants of Bangkok. And at the age of 39, he and four fellow Hakka Catholics decided to return to their home village in Eastern Guangdong. This was the year 1844, and that's important. Why? Because at that time, an imperial rest script had just been issued allowing Chinese subjects to practice Catholicism. So back in Dayang, Qiu was not successful in converting members of his family. However, he was successful in convincing non-family members in spite of all kinds of problems. Harassment from a petty official who blamed him for every time there was a bad weather or crop failures, that was because of tech mm-hmm. News. And on one occasion he had even to flew, flee into the mountain and go into hiding in, in order not to be caught and put into jail. But in spite of all that, the Christian community nonetheless kept growing and Kyo was able to build a small chapel on a piece of land donated by one of the converts. And his first convert, that's interesting too, by the name of Lysen, became Kyo's close associate. He was by profession an itinerant peddler. So while he was selling his wares in the neighboring villages in Mark and Town, he used that occasion also to tell people about Jesus Christ. So more and more people became interested and sought Kyo for further instructions in the new faith. Two years went by when Kyo thought some of these followers were ready for baptism and formal admission into the church. So with a small group that included two of his uncles, he journeyed some 120 kilometers to be baptized by a Chinese priest in the old chrétienté of Quetan, I hope I can show you that. Quetan. you see, from Dayang all the way down to Quetan. Quetan is about where that red number is 100 kilometers, 120. Uh, and then three years later, or oh, three years later, yes, in 1849, he took a larger group from Dayang and the surrounding village a nearby village to the city of Chaozhou, over there, also about 100 kilometers away, to be baptized by another Chinese priest. And it was only the following year, 1850, that finally a priest from the Paris War Mission was able to settle in Dayan and heard from Kyo and Sen the story of the beginning of the Christian communities in the area. So Kyok was also instrumental in the spread of the faith in part of the Lufong is the Lufong county. Lufong county will be about, about this area. And then we'll talk about the Puning county, the Jiang county, and the Xining county. And the uh, Lufong is about here. And then you will see all the face, starting from Kyo, is going to spread into that whole area. How comes? So in 1846, when he took his first group to Kuetan, down there, he, you know, it's sort a of big distance. So they stayed overnight in one village and they talked to the lady that took them in or that was in charge of the village. And they talk about their faith, and they become very interested. She becomes interesting. Her five sons become interesting. The son-in-laws and the wife and so on all become interested. And when they came back, they stop again, and those people say, we want to become Christians. And so a few years later, Kyo come back, take them to and again to be baptized. And those people belong to the Pang lineage, it was one of the largest lineage, about 20,000 people in that area, that was spread all along this area I just show you. And so soon, the faith spread all around, and all that started with a man that went to work in Bangkok for a few years, and then decided to come back home. So... Then Kyo thought that he had done his job. And so he moved on to his next assignment from God. And guess what? He decided to go to Taiwan, Formosa, to convert the Hakka people of Taiwan. So here we are. Simple Christians that started the spread of faith in the whole area of in Guangdong. So my next story, we move now way north into the old Manchuria over there, is a story of Bibiana, the native virgin. Bibiana, by the way, all those are things, you know, that I called from Chinese records, those two first stories. Bibiana was born in 1883 in the entire Catholic village of Urbadan, in the apostolic Vicariate of Mukden or Shenyang. And uh, that was also under the administration of the same Paris Foreign Mission Society. Bibiana had two younger siblings, a boy and a girl, and during the month of June 1900, every time a band of boxers were was sighted, the villager would flee and took refuge in the surrounding mountains and woods. But on June 27th, the alarm came too late, just as families were having their evening meal. So Bibiana's mother, who had bound feet, could not run. So she told the father, take the three children and then you'll come back to fetch me. Bibiana saw her mother while she was hiding in a uh, cornfield. She saw her mother proudly confess her Christian faith and perish under the sword of the boxers. On that same night, Profoundly impressed by the death of her mother, she considered as a saint, Bibiana decided on that same night to dedicate her life to the service of the church by becoming a Jujiada, a live-at-home virgin. From the next 25 years, while the parish remained without a resident priest, she took care of the orphans, the ages, the sick, taught catechism directed the school for girls, settled disputes, arranged matrimonial matches, wedding matches, and helped keep Urbadan parish record straight. When in 1925, section of the Shenyang Vicariate was made into a separate mission territory uh, given to the Marino Fathers, the good work of Bibiana immediately caught the attention of the American missionaries. So rather than sending young girls showing an interest in becoming sisters to the existing vicariate of or not vicariate, existing novitiate for sisters in Moubden, Father Raymond Lane, the local Marino superior, put Bibiana in charge of the formations. By her daily life, he thought, she was a witness to the many tasks Native sisters could fulfill in the new mission. Bibiana, who had a keen perception of the need of a Native church, accepted the responsibilities by saying, As long as priests and sisters are foreigners, the Catholic Church will be considered foreign. To remedy this, we need Chinese priests and many, many, many sisters. In December 1931, Bibiana took uh, eight candidates to the sisterhood from Urbadan to the city of Fushun, and turned their formation over to the four North sisters who had just arrived uh, two months before. Among these candidates, six persevered to the delight of Bibiana, and became, in sub- on September 8, 1939, the first postulant of the native congregation of the sister of the Sacred Heart of Fushun. Here is, forgot to show you. Here is Bipiana itself, and uh, these are the first six novices. That's first they become postulant and then they become novices and they have the white veil. When uh, in March 1940, and then a little bit later. That's when they became full-fledged nuns. So the seeds that Bibiana had planted and nurtured had come to fruition. Bibiana, who had no formal education, never considered herself worth to become a sister. She returned to her Badan, which by now had a resident priest, to continue what she had done since she was 17. The ministry of answering the physical and spiritual needs of the villages. She died in June 1942 when Japanese bombs fell on the village. The Sisters of the Sacred Heart played an important role in continuing parish and social activities in the Fushun Apostolic Vicariate after December 1949 when the Japanese first interned, and then su- subsequently deported the Marino priests and sisters. Today, these sisters still have work in the Fushun se- uh, section of the Shenyang Vicarion. And on July 25th of this year, 12 of these sisters, 20 priests of the diocese, and over 1,000 lay Catholics gathered in Urbadan Church, to celebrate the one hundred, I'm sorry, the one hundred and twenty years anniversary of the arrival of Christianity in the town, I can say that Bibiana's hard work had not been in vain. My third story. So now we move to Shanxi. To is okay, here. the story of La Ruan and his father, Scarface. I Some 12, or more than 12 years ago, I should say 15 now, uh, 15 years ago, after a night landing at the airport serving Taiyuan, the capital of Shanxi province, I was driven through mudded a remote village nested at the foot of falling hills. The next morning, when I looked through my bedroom window, I knew I was in for a very unique experience. There, on the top of the nearest knoll or hill, I s- could see a strange building. Imposing Chinese-style arch stone gate, surmounted by a cross. As I hurried up here, I soon could read read on the front piece of of that gate the inscription, "Shang Tian Zhe Men," doorway to heaven. I hope I have it. Here it is. So the inscriptions. uh, the gate opened on a vast esplanade, where stood two church structures in a style that seemed strangely familiar, but that I had never seen before or used for Christian architecture. One structure, built for open air mass, resembled the Temple of Heaven in Beijing. With this round and pointed roof. Hope I have it. Here. Yeah. And the one in the back resembles one of the palaces of the Forbidden City with, with those big yellow, yellow roof. Back in the village, I inquire about those buildings on the hill. Over breakfast, the pastor and the head of the village called the Huijang, told me that if I wanted to know the true story of their village and its people, I should go back up the hill and talk to Lao Wang, the caretaker of the shrine. What I saw and learned on that day is etched in my memory for the rest of my life. Here's Lao Wang with two sisters around him. When I reached the shrine, La Wang, a tall and sturdy man in his early eighties dressed in a clean blue mouse suit, was standing the rose bushes that adorned the esplanade. A water can in one hand, small rake in the other, he began to tell me a fascinating story. Castle comprised ninety percent of this village of about 1,600 people. They all bore the surnames of Wang and Li. The Wang were the original settlers and traced their lineage to two brothers who converted to Catholicism about 250 years before that. The village had been a place of pilgrimage to Mary. So what I forgot to tell you, that's... This is the place of pilgrimage to Mary of the Seven Sorrows. Notre Dame, de Set Doulon. So it's been a place of pilgrimage since the mid 1800s when the missionary came back to China. But when the the Boxer bands rampaged through the region in June 1900, they massacred, they killed a great number of Christians. For instance, this is in front of a, a church. And you have all those all those things you see they are all the names and there are three colors, all the names of the people that were Christians that were killed by by the boxer or dying. So as they march, as this boxer marched toward that particular village, there was a ten year old boy herding cattle on the hill. So the huijang at that time, rushed out to retrieve him, but it was too late. They were caught and hacked with swords. The man died, but the boy survived. They were Lao-Wang's own grandfather and father. At that same moment, Mary appeared as a lady riding a white cloud and frightened, The boxers, who left in a hurry and veered away from the village. At the news, Christian from surrounding settlement came to seek refuge within the village, and so that's when the Lee, the clan Lee, started to settle in that village. As for the boxer, they never dared to venture again close to this place, haunted by a lady ghost on a white cloud. With tears in his eyes, he spoke of his father, who in due time also became the huijang of the village and was nicknamed Scarface because of the large cicatrices on his left cheek and neck. Lao Wang also began to tell me about the Italian Franciscans who came to the village when he was still a little boy and educated him. A church used to stand on the location of the present doorway to heaven, but it was destroyed during the Cultural Revolution. He remembered being an altar boy for the friar who said the mass there. When asked about the present shrine and what he was doing there, Lao Wang remembered vividly he vividly, he remembers the date, the grand opening on September 15, 1989, for the feast day of Our Lady of the Seven Sorrows. Some 50,000 pilgrims gathered in front of the church for a mass offered under the roof of the Temple of Heaven. Since then, on that same fifth day, large crowds of pilgrims have gathered on the esplanade. At other times, he said, mass is usually said within the church that looked like one of those uh, houses in the Forbidden City, the one with the yellow roof. Pilgrims, he said, come from all over China. They ascend here in the quiet hours of the morning when the temperature is still cool. They say the rosary. They make the Stations of the Cross and pray in the shrine. He greets them, answers their questions. When I asked if underground Catholics also visit the shrine, he gave me a big smile and replied, of course they do. And I welcome them as my brothers and sisters The devotion to Mary is what unites us all under one and open church catholics. As to corroborate what he was saying, a party of five arrived after the usual uh, greeting, uh, may God bless and protect you. They told us they came from inner Mongolia and were on a pilgrimage to the the major Marian shrine of China to pray for peace in the world. They were at first hesitant to say more about themselves, especially in front of a foreigner, but Lao Wang's mild and comforting words seemed to put them at ease. So their leader confided that they were from the underground. Woman Fu Ni was three priests, two sisters, but that they avoided as much as possible contact with the clergy of the open church. So a few minutes later, after further reassuring words from Lao Wang and myself, uh, we entered the shrine to pray together and say Ave Maria. About his own life, La Wang did not say much. I learned that he too was elected when his father passed away in the mid-1950s. In 1966, he was 49 years old when he was arrested and sent to labor camp. He never saw his wife and son until the age of 65 when he was allowed to return. All these were bits and pieces of a rambling conversation much too short. A sister had arrived to remind the elderly man of his medical appointment at the nearby clinic. As for me, I had to return to Taiyuan before the end of the afternoon. But I knew I needed to come back and record in Lao uh, Lao Wang's own words and in full detail the history of the village, and the history of his family. We agreed, therefore, to meet in three months and to spend as much time as needed together to get it off. Three weeks later, the parish priest telephoned me to announce that Lao Wang had gone to meet his creator and redeemer. I was sad to have missed the opportunity of adding more of Lao Wang's life story and recollection to the shared heritage of the Chinese Catholic Church. (coughs) I'm sorry. All that gets me emotional. Um, My third story, still have time, I guess, Uh, uh, is my fourth story. It's uh, what I call the Wounded Church Community of Gao Jia Zhuang. Gao Zhuang. Let's, um, let's see what I have here. Or oh, here are the, the five, the three priests, and the two sisters from the underground. as they were going down on from the shrine. Okay. So now we talk about the wounded Catholic community of Gao Jia uh, Zhuang. Um, over the year, I made several trips in the interior of China to see places where Father Vincent Leb had been and interviewed people who knew him or heard of him. So in April 2014, in preparation for this year, 75th anniversary of the death of Father Vincent Leb, I went on a search for the village and the church where Leb served as pastor in 1927 and 1928. Two native sisters, Sister Yang and Sister Zhao, accompanied me. They both belong to the congregation of the Little Sisters of St. Teresa of the Child Jesus, founded by Father Leb in 1928. And what was very interesting is these uh, p- pictures chosen to, um, uh, to announce my, my lectures. Um, here, this is Bishop Shun. is one of the s- first six bishops ordained by the Pope in 1926. And Father Lamb next to him. So, the place we were looking is called Gaojia uh, the, the village of the family Gao. You could translate that in, in English. Um, that was in an in area, a mission area called Lixian, an apostolic prefecture, they call it at that time. And later on, it became the village, or it became the diocese of Angu. So you see Angu here, Angu. And just to locate here, you see Tianjin over there. Beijing is a little bit higher up here. Uh, for those that know the area, Shejiazhuang is here. And then you see here, we already start to go into Shanxi. You see Taiyuan, the capital of Shanxi, is here. So that gives you an idea where Ango is. It's a very rural area. Um, so where am I here? Okay. So both sisters, those two sisters that accompany me, they were from Ango City, but they didn't know that village of Gao never heard of it, except that uh, uh, it seems to be in a location that was under the control of, Church. Uh, and they had received vague information from my elderly priest that this was not a Catholic or Christian village anymore and that there were no church over there. When I showed them a 1932 picture of a Western looking church with the mention on the back reading former Cathedral of. Gao Jia the sisters were skeptical, for they thought the building was much too large for a village church. I insisted, however, that we should try to find the village where Bishop Sun, here, Mercury of Sun one of the first six Chinese bishops ordained in Rome in 26, had established. His first residence in 1924 and where Father Leb had been pastor. So the expedition was set for April 7, 2014. The evening before, I opened a book that is a book in French that, in which we have the letters that Father Leb wrote to the students he had. When he was in Europe, Lab was sent to Europe for seven years um, because many missionaries didn't like his attitude. So he, he had, you know, during that time, being kind of, uh, the the, the campus, campus minister of all the Chinese students in Europe, and so he he has a lot of these the letters. And those Chinese a lot were from Hubei, so they knew the area. So, uh, Leb's letter is very detailed about, about this area. And so, I opened the book, that book, and I read Leb's letter describing how Christianity began and flourished in Jiajuang. It all started in the early 1860s with a widow's conversion from Buddhism <coughs> to Christianity. Catholicism, having some resources of her own, she gave land for the construction of a church. And with contribution of a growing number of converts, a chapel was eventually built, but the village remained without a resident priest. So on Sundays and major feast day, a little bit like Bibiana in the other place, uh, she led the community in prayer, prepared the meals for those coming from far away villages. And finally, to a great joy, a priest and a group of sisters settled in Gaujatwa, And the widow, by then an old lady, passed the remaining days or years in prayers in the sister's convent. Simple story, right? In the morning, then of uh, April 7th, the sisters and I were up at 5 a.m., and two local Christians Uh, by the name of Wang Wang Jianjun and Wang Jianhua came to pick us up with a minivan. The directions we had received were quite vague. So after asking several times, receiving conflicting information, and still not finding the place, we stopped for lunch, (laughs) somewhat discouraged. But refreshed by the meal, we decided to give it one more try. And this time, we found a farmer tilling his field who knew exactly where it was and told us how to get there. The name of the village, he said, that's why you couldn't find it, has been changed to Gao Zhuang And it was about 30 minutes away by car. So as we ed- headed in that direction, I chose this occasion to tell the sisters and the two uh, Christians um, the story of the beginning of Christianity in the village. And I also added for the sisters that in a previous research, I had found that the sisters who came in the village in 1927 were the first group of native religious sisters in the prefectures. And they belong, Tony, what you mentioned yesterday, they were Filles de Saint-Joseph, or Josephine. And it was only the following year in April 1928 that they accepted Bishop Swan and Father Leb's suggestion to become a new foundation of the Carmel of Lisieux. And be called the little sisters of Saint Teresa of the Child Jesus. So Gao Chuan was a large village. There were a lot of macadamized street, and so you could see that was a kind of important place. But the many religious poster on the door were a clear indication that we were in Catholic territory and reminding me that this region had been evangelized by the Jesuits. Most posters like this one bore the traditional Jesuit logo, a cross standing standing ob- above the monogram JHS. And underneath three nails representing the three vows of simplicity of life, celibacy, and obedience. But inside the monograph, the letter M had been intertwined, a sign that the devotion to Mary was paramount in this village, only a few miles away from the most revered Marian shrine of Don a man in his 50s took us to the dwelling of the Catholic leader, and on the way he told us the population of the village was about 3,000, so it's a big place, with more than half being Catholics. The woman who answered the door looked at us suspiciously and said, hmm, the region was not there. But if he wanted to know about Father Leb, uh, go down, a few hours down the street and talk to the the old lady. She will tell you about it. So we went, we entered the house of the 89 years old lady and uh, she was by herself and very, very friendly. Here she is, talking to one of the sisters. She told us, she could not remember Father Lamb because she was still too young, but as she grew up, she heard a lot of good things about Father Lamb from her parents and the other believers in the village. And she was about to tell us about the church when five ladies barged into the house, scolding her to talk to strangers. They also cursed the sisters, young and Zhao, for being unfaithful to the pope and agents of the communist government sent to spy on them. They told us to get out and leave the village before the police came and give them more trouble, give them more trouble. It became quite clear that we were in an underground Catholic stronghold and that these people believed what underground priests had been telling them about the open church. We apologized for upsetting them, and upon leaving, greeting them with the usual, may the Lord protect and bless you, which they didn't bother to respond. Back on the street, the same man who accompanied us pointed to a middle-aged man riding a bicycle and said, here comes the white When we tried to stop him, the Catholic leader muttered, he was too busy at the present time to talk to us. Obviously, he had been warned. Visibly embarrassed, the Catholic man by our side said, we are not all like that, but you should understand. Many in the village have suffered a lot and remain suspicious of any stranger walking in. Through many trials and prison terms, for some of us, we have maintained our faith and our allegiance to the Pope. I know where the old church was, and I will show you the place. So he took us to a crossroad with empty lots on both sides, here, he said, stood the church and the other buildings belonging to the parish and to the bishop. The ground in front of us was big enough to accommodate a church, a rectory, a minor seminary, convent for sisters, and even a small school. Oops. Excuse me, excuse me, I will go back. Here it is. Um, So large-sized gray bricks piled up against each side of the crossroad were not the typical yellow bricks made of clay and straw or the more contemporary small red bricks. Rather, they were the kind of large gray bricks found in Herbe province in most of the 100-plus-year-old churches. The man could not remember when the church was demolished. But he recalled, it didn't look particularly Chinese. So I was about to show him the 1932 photograph of the church, identified as being the one of Gao and see if he would recognize it. Guess what? Another group of angry women <laughs> arrived. <laughs> cursing us and telling us to go away. <laughs> Since it had become clear that we were not welcome and no one would provide us further information, we returned to our car and left. On the way back, on the ride back to Anguo, our small party was glad to have achieved our goal to find a village where Bishop Sun and Father Leb. Had resided before moving to Hongwu in 29. But Sister Yang and Zhao had tears in their eyes. They had been vilified by the descendants of the villagers who, some 80 years before, had welcomed the first sisters of their congregations. We were also saddened because we felt more deeply than ever the depths of the division that's still existing among some Chinese Catholics. And yet, the meeting of that single Catholic man had filled us with hope that reconciliation was possible. Now, if I still have time for some concluding remarks, yeah? Okay, so then you give me 10 minutes. <laughs> uh, well, this is, I think, it's important. Sir, uh, I am well aware that some scholars might be inclined to regard my first story, called from Western missionary records, as someone, how do you geographical. Okay. Um, I piece. Together, the story of Nuke uh, from several accounts in Adrien Lone's book, Mission du Grandon. Uh, the inception for the book was in 1886, a letter from their bishop, Bishop Augustin Chos, who was the prefect apostolic over there, asking each of his missionaries to write based on local inquiries the history of the local missionary district they have been assigned to." In his preface, Loney so Lonnie just reprinted them as such. He says, these are monographs of parishes and humble chrétienté. Facts are neither embellished nor made more important than they are. They are simple, clear, precise, and accurate records that will be appreciated by the successor of those who wrote them. So we are therefore in the presence of meticulously collected local accounts from the mouths of local Christians. And the same can be said of the story of Bibiana. She did the exact same thing that countless virgins had done and were doing all over China. It just happened that in her case, a missionary and some sisters were attentive enough to tell about her in more details, Their accounts are simple and factual with none of the contrived supernatural embellishment typical of the hagi- hagiographies. I have problems with that word. Now, another point is that the mention of the apparition of the Virgin Mary in my third story may also raise the eyebrows of some scholars both Mattson and Tony here, wrote about the Chinese Catholic profound devotion to Mary, especially in time of dangers, and the role miracles continue to play in their life. And it's very interesting that Clark, in one of his books, pointed to similarities between the narrative of Chinese Catholic miracle accounts and the traditional uh, and popular indigenous uh, for story of the supernatural or ghost story to be translated like this. So I would say that one does not not need to believe in miracles to understand why the boxer veered away from the village after hacking at the little boy and his father. They saw a ghost on the white clouds. It could have been an illusion caused by a strangely shaped clouds of an approaching summer storm or some bizarre beams of color in the evening sky. But for the Chinese Catholics, it was Mary coming to their rescue. My last story raised another issue. Under the present political and limitations, the task of gathering information in China is a delicate one, requiring good interpersonal relationship with local government, religious officials, as well as the people to interview. I'm glad that some Chinese scholars are realizing the urgency of the task. Researchers need to act quickly before too many law ones pass away taking with them the joyful and painful story that are the very fiber of these faith communities. These memories are a legacy and a heritage that belong to the Chinese church. They are part and parcel of its identity and should not be allowed to get lost forever. So a well-balanced history of Christianity in China should therefore be more than history of how structure, hierarchies, official theology were established. The front stage should not be occupied only by the policy makers of missionary society and even the indigenous church, but also by the average priest, pastor, sister, catechist, evangelist, and local Christians. This is where grassroots interviews come fully into play. Through the flesh and blood story of these people, one can genuinely sense the ups and downs of intercultural relationship, transcultural evaluation and people pronounce it differently, and cynicization of the Chinese church. And now, my last paragraph, if you allow me to end up in a somewhat spiritual note, I would say that these stories are the materials of the Act of the Apostles in China. Following the example of this Luke, at least I tried that, in the original Acts of the Apostles, we ought to record not only the deeds of the clergy and religious sisters who follow in the footsteps of Peter and Paul, but also the story of no less important local figures, our contemporary Stephen, Cornelius, Priscilla, Lydia, Gaius, and so on. They play an important role, not only in founding, nurturing, and keeping alive local Christian community, but also, as you can see in the picture coming up now, in shouldering most of the Chinese church social services. Oh, that's the lady on the clouds. (laughs) But here, it's all what the Christians are involved in. So this would be the topic of another interesting lecture on the indigenizations of the Chinese church. Thank you very much.